You are now listening to the October 14th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Let's Read the Bible, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Let's Read the Bible. Hello, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries listeners. This is Nicole Um with Let's Read the Bible. Have you ever participated in the treasure hunt? It is a game people play when they go on a picnic in which pieces of paper with numbers are hidden here and there and players who find them are given gifts according to the numbers they find. The gifts are not that grand, but participants do their best to find those pieces of paper and search every possible place that they could have been hidden. And when they find them, they shout out for joy and run to the game organizer and exchange the pieces of paper for treasure. But suppose in your life there is a treasure to be found that is so much more valuable than those found in the treasure hunt. If the treasure were able to shield you and protect you, would you diligently search for it so that you could possess it? Would you do your very best to find that treasure that could help you resist all manner of temptations that would cause you to stumble? Would you seek for that treasure if it would lead you to eternal life and not to the way of destruction? Would you do your best to possess that treasure if it would help you understand the way to goodness and to have a joyful soul? There is such treasure that will become your life's shield, help you win over temptations, lead you to the way of life, and make your soul joyful. It is wisdom. Proverbs chapter 2 that we will read together today lists such benefits that wisdom gives us. Would you like to have wisdom that will give you benefits like these? How bad do you want them? Proverbs chapter 2 verse 4 says, If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures. We would do our best to find the pieces of paper when we play the treasure hunt game, which might give us some small gift. But how about the treasure of wisdom? Are you also doing all you can to find the wisdom that allows us to go on the right path and leads us to live as children of the Holy God? The Bible tells us to search for wisdom as if we seek it as silver, and as for hidden treasure. And once we search for wisdom as best as we can and eventually find it, the Bible tells us that we will understand the fear of the Lord and know Him. As we start the new year of 2023, I hope we will find wisdom just as we would search for hidden treasures and just as we would seek silver and gold. Let's read Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 to 22 together. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, 
If you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. Delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked, and who are devious in their ways. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, for her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of light. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous, for the upright will inhibit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. We just read Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 to 22 from the Bible together.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of McLean Bible Church. Today's topic is worldly giving and godly giving. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. What I want to do today is show us in Mark 12 a contrast between what I'll call worldly giving and godly giving. In other words, there are ways to give that align with the ways of this world. And there's a way to give that aligns with the word of God. And I just want to encourage you to ask the question, which one of these marks your life? Because I want to show you that this text is not ultimately about giving. It's ultimately about Jesus and how he changes our lives for our good from the inside out in a way that leads us to live and love and give in ways that are totally different from this world. So let's start by hearing directly from his word in Mark chapter 12, verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, he being Jesus, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So you see the contrast, right? It's pretty obvious between these scribes in Verse 38, the leaders in the religious life of God's people, the overseers of this religious system, and then many rich people who gave large sums of money to the treasury. So you've got that picture, and then you have a poor widow who put in two small copper coins, basically the smallest amount of money anybody could give a penny. Yet Jesus is watching all of this. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, this woman has put in more than everybody else who's giving here. In other words, Jesus saw something that nobody else saw, which means there's a different way to think about giving than the way the world thinks about giving. And not just the world out there, but the religious world. I think we're about to see, part of what we need to see, is how worldly giving creeps into and often characterizes our giving even in the church. So let's think about the contrasts here. You might write them down, five of them. Contrast number one, worldly giving is motivated by pride, while godly giving 
is motivated by humility. So the picture of these scribes in verses 38 through 40 is clearly a picture of pride. Their motive in practicing religion was their own pride. So is that possible? In our giving for our motive to actually be pride. I think there's many ways that's possible. Think about it. One, we, we can give to things in this world that exalt ourselves over God. Maybe think about the earliest example of this in the Bible, the Tower of Babel. Can you imagine the fundraising campaign for that? Give your bricks and mortar. We're going to build a monument to ourselves. And people gave generously and sacrificially, and it was built. And thousands of years later, today, there are all sorts of people, institutions, and organizations that you can give to that have as their aim the exaltation of all we can do with no regard for God. Maybe even with active disregard for God. Surely that's pride. But then think about the part that pride can play even in giving to the church or to Christian ministries. These scribes were proud of their robes and long prayers and many rich people were proud of the large sums they could give. And even if they didn't say it to others, they could easily think to themselves, look at all I'm giving. God must be glad that I'm a giver in a way that led to pride in how they gave. When the reality is, the only reason they were able to give is because of the grace of God in their lives. And the same is true for each of us. It's not like ultimately they earned or we earn money for ourselves and then decide if we're going to give it to God. No. That's prideful at the core. Humility realizes it already belongs to God. We read this this week, Psalm 89, verse 11. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it. Humility says all that's in the world belongs to God, including my money. The only reason I have it is because he's given it to me. So all my money comes from God. It all belongs to God. Only reason I have it is because he's been generous to me. Now, as soon as I say that, some people immediately think, wait a minute. I work hard for my money. I spent years getting education and experience for my job. I get up early every morning. I work hard all day. I work hard for my money. And I don't doubt that for a second. But let me ask you a question. Where do you get the energy to work hard? Who gives you breath every morning that you wake up? Who gave you a mind to learn and grow and think? Who gives you the ability to process and make business decisions all day? Who gives you a body to work, a mouth to speak, ears to hear, eyes to see? It is sinful pride and utter foolishness to think that you are ultimately behind all that you have. 
Everything good you have is evidence of the grace of God toward you. It is not a coincidence that our church's Bible reading this morning, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, we read these words, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. It is he who gives you power to get wealth. God is speaking that over us today in an unmistakable way. Now put this together. This is why pride has no place in godly giving. Because our giving in and of itself is a picture of his grace. I've used the illustration before of times when my children have given gifts to me for my birthday or Father's Day or Christmas using my money to buy the gift. So did they actually give me a gift? Well, yes. And they're sitting over here like it genuinely came from their heart. But no, it came from my wallet. And so with us. Everything good we have comes from God. So why would any of us, even in our own minds, want any credit for giving money when our money ultimately belongs to God and comes from God? And keep going. Don't miss this. Because in our pride, we can actually start to convince ourselves that God needs us to give to him. In our pride, we can actually take the God upon whom we are totally dependent for everything we have, and we can convince ourselves that he is dependent on us. Many Christian appeals for giving, church appeals for giving are based on this, almost making God out to be like a beggar. Oh, man, woman, brother, sister in Christ, don't be deceived. God does not need you. We don't give because God needs our help. He's the Almighty. We give out of the overflow of God's help for us. And while we're here, one more subtle way that pride creeps into our giving. I think about the way Christians sometimes talk about giving. And even churches, pastors appeal for giving. Like, look at all Jesus has done for you. The least you could do is give to him. You owe him that. And I want to encourage you to never think like that. Because you don't owe Jesus anything. You don't owe Jesus your money, your time, or anything else. Christian life is not about Jesus giving his life for you, then you paying him back with your money or whatever else. No. Actually, this is the whole point of Christianity, of the gospel. Because as soon as you try to pay Jesus back for all he has done for you, you are undercutting the very foundation of grace that saved you in the first place. It's not grace if you pay it back. And Jesus hasn't called us to pay him back. It's the whole point of grace. We can't pay Jesus for what he's done for us. Jesus is not a businessman looking to do a business deal with us. 
And then, this is so important, because in so many Christians' lives, we've almost conditioned ourselves to think about all that Jesus did for us in the past on the cross, so then what can we do for him now? We get into this sick religious mode of thinking that our church attendance or Bible reading or praying or giving here or there are somehow going to pay Jesus like we pay our mortgage every month. When that misses the whole point too. Thinking that in light of all Jesus has given for us, now we give to him. Misses the whole point because the reality is Jesus has not stopped giving to us. Christian, Jesus didn't just give his life for you in the past. He's giving you life right now. So we just talked about. Every good thing in your life at this moment is because Jesus, by his grace, is giving it to you. There is nothing good in you apart from the grace of God in Jesus. Which means that anything good you do today is the work of Jesus in you today. You want to know why Jesus is not a businessman looking to do a business deal with you? Because you don't have anything to offer. You bring sin to the table. That's your contribution. Everything good you have comes from him. So put aside. Put aside all the pride, even the subtle pride in your life and your giving. And live and give out of the overflow of humility before God. Is that not the picture we see in this widow? A poor widow, humbly walking up, knowing that even the penny she has is a picture of God's grace in her life. And she gives it humbly. And you've got to get the picture here. The scene is the temple treasury, the temple court, where there were 13 shofar chests. Think trumpet-like receptacles that were set out for people to drop their offerings in. And people would walk up and give their offerings and every coin they dropped could be heard. And the more you gave, the more noise you made. And the more noise you made, the more attention you drew to yourself. So here's another contrast. Worldly giving wants to be seen while godly giving wants to be behind the scenes. In contrast to these scribes and many rich people, this poor widow, well, she doesn't know Jesus is watching her. She doesn't want anyone to watch her. She just wants to give and get out of there, which is how Jesus taught us to give. Don't give to be seen, recognized, rewarded by others. Think about how we can miss this one especially in a day where churches and Christian ministries actually work against this. So often, churches and Christian ministries go out of their way to give extra honor to the people who give the most. We name buildings or initiatives after givers. We give plaques or create memorials to honor givers. When Jesus has specifically warned us, Matthew chapter 6, when you give, don't make any noise about it. That's what hypocrites do. They like the praise of men. They're living for praise in this world. Not you. When you give, do it in secret. 
like your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand is doing. Worldly giving wants to be seen. Giving that glorifies God is content with God alone seeing the giving while you stay behind the scenes. Which leads to a third contrast here. Worldly giving desires power over others while godly giving demonstrates trust in God. You just jump to the end of this passage. You see this phrase. This poor widow put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And this is a tough one when you really think about it. Let's just play the role of this woman's financial counselor for a minute. So imagine her husband died years ago. She comes to you and said, I'm down, says, I'm down to my last $2. I have nothing else. Nothing else. This is all I have to live on. But I believe God wants me to put it in the offering. What do you think? How would we respond? What would we tell her? I think we'd probably say, well, that is really generous of you. It says so much about your heart. But God also gives us wisdom, common sense. God knows your heart. He knows you want to give. But he also tells you to take care of yourself. So I'm sure God would have you keep these coins and buy food for tomorrow. He wants to meet your needs. Where is God going to provide you food from? He's not just going to send it down from heaven. God wants you to be wise. Feed yourself. I think that's what we'd say. Even based on some other biblical principles. But Jesus didn't question her wisdom at all. Instead, he gave her an unqualified commendation. In fact, he set her up as a model for our giving. Why? Because godly giving demonstrates trust in God. And the contrast here is with world, worldly giving that desires power over others. Do you remember what Jesus said about these scribes right before this in verse 40? They devour widows' houses. We're not sure exactly what that means practically, but clearly it wasn't good. And this is a major part of the story that we cannot miss because Jesus is giving here a stinging rebuke to a religious system that was supposed to care for widows, but was leaving them in poverty. God said all throughout his word to care for widows, for orphans, for sojourners. Instead of God's people in the temple giving and then using that which was given for the sake of widows, orphans, sojourners, women like this poor widow, they were ignoring them. And she was down to no money to her name. So church, let us make sure that in our giving, we are prioritizing what God says to prioritize. Care for those in need for widows in need of support, for children in need of homes, for refugees in need of help. The list goes on for people in our city and around the world with urgent spiritual and physical needs. And as a side note, when it comes to worldly giving that desires power over others, I can't help but think about the dangerous tendency even or especially in the church 
to actually give power to the people who give most. I have seen people give large sums in the church and then expect power. And if or when they don't get that power, they threaten to take their gifts elsewhere. So be it. Political lust for power has no place in the church of Jesus Christ, especially if it's tied to money. God specifically and sternly warns James 2 about giving any preferential treatment to the wealthy. And Acts chapter 8 verse 20 makes clear, you cannot buy spiritual power with material wealth. Worldly giving desires power over others. Godly giving demonstrates trust in God. Which then leads to, okay, so the fourth contrast, worldly giving is comfortable and convenient. While godly giving is sacrificial and costly. Just think about the contrast here. Rich people giving large sums that did not involve sacrifice. They were comfortable and convenient. And Jesus says, this woman put in more than all of them. Why? Because they had contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This Poor widow, an actual amount, gave far less than everyone else. But in proportion to what she had, she gave far more. But this is not how we normally think about our giving or others' giving. We think the bigger the better. We see someone give a big amount and we think, oh, that's particularly generous, maybe even sacrificial. We Give less and we think, oh, I'm just, I'm not able to do as much as others. When the reality is one person can give $25 in an act of great sacrifice, while another person can give a million dollars and not sacrifice at all. If someone makes $10 million a year and gives away $9 million and spends a mere million on themselves, we may be impressed but is this giving like God calls us to give? There's a significant difference between comfortable giving and sacrificial giving. And God calls us to do the latter. This is all over the Bible. Think 2 Corinthians chapter 8. God is talking about the impoverished churches in Macedonia. And when they heard that the church in Jerusalem was in the middle of famine... They gave generously. God says, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. What a picture. They gave themselves first and foremost to the Lord, and that led them to give beyond their means in a way that was hard to give. But they didn't do it begrudgingly. Did you see this? They did it one of their own accord. They weren't forced to do that. And they were begging us earnestly for the privilege of giving to starving saints in Jerusalem. 
This is Christian giving. It's a supernatural overflow of a life surrendered to the Lord. So just ask the question, is our giving, is your giving, is my giving comfortable and convenient or sacrificial and costly? Maybe another way to put it, based on that language in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, are you giving less than your ability, according to your ability, or beyond your ability? So less than your ability, meaning you could easily give more according to your ability, giving in a way that's truly commensurate with what God has given you, proportionate to what God has given you. And beyond your ability means giving to the point of sacrifice, which certainly seems to be what God is calling us to. Mark 12, 2 Corinthians 8, and a host of other places. So what should this look like in our lives? I've always appreciated what C.S. Lewis said. He said, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. What would it look like if you decided to leave behind comfortable and convenient giving for sacrificial and costly giving? Not because you have to, Because you want to. Again, as the overflow of God's grace in you, towards you, through you. This is why, right after the passage we read about, these Macedonians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we see in verse 9 of that same chapter, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is ultimately about, it's ultimately about Jesus Christ. Giving like this is the overflow of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who though he was rich, for our sake he became poor. What does that mean? This is the greatest news in all the world, God has come to us, has left his throne in glory. He came to us in the person of Jesus. He became poor. He became like us. He lived among us. And then he died for us. He was killed by us. Why? He came to save us from our sins, from all the ways that we have all turned from God and his ways to ourselves and our own ways. God has come to us in the person of Jesus. He's paid the price for our sins. Why? So that you, by his poverty, by him doing that, might become rich. You might say, that means through Jesus I can have a lot of money? No. You can have something so much better than all the money in this world. You can have your sins totally forgiven, and you can be restored to relationship with God for eternal life for the next 10 trillion years and beyond. That's what it means to be rich. 
So we invite you, if you've never received the grace of Jesus in your life, to do so today, to hear God speaking to your heart right now by his spirit, saying to you that he loves you so much. He's brought you here to hear this news. He loves you. The God who made you loves you. And he's made a way for you to be forgiven of all your sin and restored to relationship with him to experience eternal life now and forever with him. We invite you to put your faith in Jesus. And when you do, and for all who have, then you now have a new heart that wants to give your all to God. And you will give generously and sacrificially. And in a weird way, you'll do it cheerfully. Again, not because you're paying Jesus back, but because Jesus is now your life. And you live. And you give to spread this good news of God's love to the ends of the earth. I think about an email I received one time from a friend of mine living among the unreached in the world, people who've never heard the gospel. He wrote, how many people have not believed because they have not heard? What will it take for those people to hear? Have they not heard because there's no one to tell them? What can we do in obedience to God to change a world in which there are billions of people who cannot call on the name of the Lord because they haven't believed and who haven't believed because there is no one to tell them? Most of us would say we know the answer to that question. But the truth is there will continue to be billions of people who do not hear as long as we continue to use spare time and spare money to reach them. These are two radically different questions. What can we spare and what will it take? I think that's a good question. What would happen if we stopped asking how much we could spare to spread the gospel in the world and we started asking how much it was going to take? And obviously, we don't assume that any one of us can single-handedly give enough to make that happen. But I can't help but to wonder, what if God actually wanted to reach the world with the good news of his love in Jesus? What might we expect him to put in the hands of his church? Maybe unprecedented wealth in the history of the world. That's what he's given us. So the church in the world today, all the wealth that is needed to reach all the nations with the gospel is in the church right now. The question is, are we going to coast through Christian lives marked by worldly giving that is comfortable and convenient? Or are we going to leave behind the ways of this world and give our lives to godly giving that is sacrificial and costly. Which leads to the last contrast. Worldly giving bears fruit for a while, but godly giving bears fruit forever. You just think about it. Obviously, there are many people and places in the world that will ask you and me 
to give to things, even good things, that will last for a time. But what does it look like to give to that which will last forever? May it not be lost on us today that we're sitting here 2,000 years after this scene in Mark 12. And we're talking about two small copper coins, a penny, that a poor widow put in a coffer? Or another woman who has more breaks an expensive alabaster flask and anoints Jesus with it. And Jesus says in Mark 14, verse 9, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now these two stories, these two women in Mark 12 and 14 are powerful pictures of what God does through godly giving. Small amounts, large amounts. How God uses godly gifts to resound to his glory, the good of many others in the world, and the good of the giver in ways far beyond what we could find. Sent him to die 
I scarce can take it in That on a cross My burdens gladly bearing He bled and died To take away my sin Then sings my soul My Savior God to Thee How great Thou art how great Thou art Then sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee How great Thou art How great Thou art And when Christ shall come With shout of acclamation and take me home What joy shall fill my heart Then I shall bow In humble adoration And there proclaim My God, how great Thou art Then sings my soul My Savior God to Thee how great Thou art, how great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art, how great Thou art, how great Thou art. The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. And he says here, and it will be built again with plaza, moat, even in times of distress. So he's saying, hey, here's where this clock starts, from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. And that's very interesting because we have that decree in Nehemiah chapter 2. We know exactly the year that that came about. And if you do the math and you have 69 weeks of years, this 69 weeks from that decree ends up being in 32 AD, right around March or April, and it says, until Messiah the Prince. It actually turns out to be the exact day that Christ came into Jerusalem and they were saying, Hosanna, the king of the Jews, before they crucified him a week later. So the prophecy is it's going to be this much time till the king comes in, Messiah the prince, the Messiah. And so we have 69 weeks, 7 plus 60, 62, and then notice what it says here. And then after 62 weeks, verse 26, that implies the seven is there because he said 762, that's 69, right? After that second part, the Messiah will what? Be cut off. 
You know, this was written many years before Jesus died. And we have the prophecy that he would be cut off at the exact time that you could figure out exactly when he'd be cut off. It will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and sanctuary. And its end will become with flood, even to the end that there will be war, desolations are determined. We know that that time came and 69 weeks of years was at the point Christ was coming in. Then what happened after that? He was cut off. And then what happened in 70 AD? The temple was destroyed. We have the place destroyed, right? Just like it says. Okay, so we have 69 weeks. And now we have here someone to come. He says here, as we're going to see. Notice in verse 26. Messiah cut off people of the prince. Notice this, the people of the prince who is to come. The term prince means a ruler. The people of him, those are Satan's people, as we're going to see. They're the people that aren't good. They're the ones who destroyed Jerusalem, as we're going to see. And then notice in verse 27, we have now another statement about this last week of years. Very interesting. And he, that's the prince who's going to come, right, will make a firm covenant, that's an agreement, with the many, those are Jews, for one week. That's that last week, isn't it? So he's talking about the 70th week. But in the middle of the week, that's in the middle, that's seven years, three and a half years. What is he going to do? He's going to what? He's going to cut off, put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. On the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. The abomination of desolation. Even a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out to the one who makes desolate. So we have this 70th week. And it begins with this abomination of desolation making a deal with Israel to start sacrifices again. But he, in the middle of that seven years, cuts it off. Okay, That's what it says there. So we have 70 weeks of years. And now the reality is that God did something very amazing. And it's amazing for us if you're a Gentile. When Israel rejected Jesus Christ, God's plan, which was primarily for Israel to be a kingdom of priests for the nations to see, they failed and crucified the Messiah. His plan turned to Gentiles. It's a mystery. It's called the church. We are living in this gap of time where God is no longer directly dealing with Israel. That's 69 weeks. He is dealing with Gentiles until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Romans chapter 11. Then once we're taken away and and fullness is there, then he turns his clock back to that last week to deal with Israel. And what is he doing? He's saving them to make an end of sin, to bring an everlasting rest. But two things are happening in this 70th week. One, it is the day of the Lord, judgment upon the nations. We heard about that before. And then he's going to use that to purge Israel to see their need for the Messiah when he comes, and they will mourn and weep over him when he comes. Look in Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12, verse 10. So that's where we get our seven-year tribulation. You get it from here, from the Scriptures. Daniel chapter 12, verse 10. Many will be purged, purified and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. If you're wicked, you're in trouble. Ask God to open your eyes. But those who have insight will understand. And from the time that the regular sacrifice is what? Abolished. That's the middle, right? And the abomination of desolation is set up. That's him being set up. We'll see that, and we see that in our passage today. Remember that. There will be 1,290 days. That's 30 more days than three and a half years. Okay? 
How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains 1335. I believe that means you made it into the millennium because you're a believer in the tribulation. But as for you, go your way to the end, and then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. So then let me summarize. God's plan for Israel was temporarily discontinued when the Messiah was cut off, and it was God's plan. And he moved his mercy, Romans chapter 11, to Gentiles. The gospel is going out to the world through the church before his name was being proclaimed through Israel at that time. That's why in this seven-year tribulation, there'll be 144,000 Jews sharing the gospel because he's using them again during that time. And so there's a seven-year tribulation. That's the one week that's left. And it's the time of Jacob's trouble. It is a time of distress. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 24, a time that if it hadn't been cut short, no flesh would have survived. It's a time of tribulation leading up to the great tribulation, but the church will not enter into it. You know, if you see all the stuff we're going to see today about this time, you'd be shaken up too if someone shared the word and said, hey, you're going into that. No, we're not going into that. Jesus is going to deliver us from the wrath to come. So then, back to our passage, and we're going to go through other passages too. So he says, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him, that's being taken before the rapture, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect the day of the Lord has come. Hey, that time hasn't come yet. You didn't miss God coming for you first because that time hasn't come. And he's going to share now two things that have to happen for that actually to come. And he says here, let no one deceive you in any way. Here we go. For it, speaking of the day of the Lord, which is during this tribulation, which it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God and object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember While I was still with you, I was telling you these things. So then two events must happen for that to happen. And we are not going to see those events because we're not destined for wrath. But he's explaining so that you will not be taken captive by those who will say that you will go through that. And there are a lot of bad theologies out there. People that do that right now stay away from Reformed theology. Their eschatology is absolutely as evil as what these people were trying to twist here. And Paul is correcting So notice there's two things that are going to happen first. There has to be first a worldwide apostasy. He says here, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. The term apostasy speaks of falling away or a defection. That's what it means, a departure. Now here we have little apostasies in places where we see that. Anytime someone names the name of Christ... And they claim to follow him, but they're really not. It's a false claim. And then they turn away from him to something else. That is apostasy. A true believer cannot apostatize. Because you are in Christ. You can never turn away from him. You're his forever. No one will snatch you out of his hand, including yourself, right? If you're in Christ, you cannot apostatize. But if you're not in Christ, you certainly can. And the reality is, we see in Hebrews chapter 6, that there are those who have tasted the good word of God and tasted the Spirit, and they turn away. There's no way to restore them to repentance. They've apostatized. And so back in our passage, he's saying, the day of the Lord won't come unless 
the apostasy has come. Which means, basically, everyone who names the true name of the Lord is going to turn away from that in mass. The day Lord is not going to come till that happens. True believers will be gone, and the fakers, they will no longer claim to follow the Jesus of the Scripture. They will turn away. They will apostatize. And that leads the groundwork for them worshiping the beast. You see that. And notice what he says here. He says, will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself. Notice he doesn't say above God, because he's no longer doing that at this point. Above, he'll do that later on. Above every so-called God and object of worship. See, they've apostatized, so they got all their objects of worship and so-called gods, and this guy's going to oppose and go above all of them. We're going to see he's going to make himself out to be God. So the reality is, there's going to be a thorough, complete apostasy. The Lord Jesus spoke about this. Matthew 24.10, he said, At that time, many will fall away and deliver up one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end shall be saved. Now that's speaking to Jews, and that's true. And that's true because when Christ comes, if you're still there, you're going to get saved. For the Jews. So then we have this apostasy that must come first. It lays the groundwork. You're not in the day of the Lord till there is the massive apostasy of turning away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not real believers, it's fakers and make believers. If you're sitting here today, you're a faker or a make believer, I don't know your heart. You know, if we get taken away today and you go into this, you're going to turn away. That's what it says. And you're going to worship the beast. You're going to be deluded. And you're going to be deceived. And God's going to allow it so you'll go to your judgment because you did not have a love to be saved, rejoice in the truth, and be saved and trust in Christ. There's a point where God allows his judgment to come when you have rejected him. So that's the first thing, right? Now, what's the second one? This is where it gets kind of complex. Okay, the apostasy comes first. And then secondly, the man of lawlessness is... Revealed. The term lawlessness speaks of sin. It speaks of a lack of boundaries and really regarding conduct and sin. It's sin. First John chapter three, verse four says, sin is lawlessness. And so notice here, first of all, let's make some observations. The man of lawlessness. It's a man. It's not a God. It's not an angel. It's a man, a created being like you and I. One of God's creations is the man of sin. Well, who is this man of sin? Who is this man of lawlessness? There's a lot in Scripture. And again, we don't want to get tantalized and focus on That's not the point. The point is you're going to see that Christ is going to defeat him. There are bad things coming, but Christ is going to defeat him. And that's the point. Notice how he's described here in our passage. He's described as the son of destruction. That's the description here. The term destruction means utter waste, utter destruction. And this term son obviously speaks of a relationship. When you are a son of something, you are related. You're identified by, right? The only other one time this is used, by the way, is used in John chapter 17, verse 12, in reference to Judas. It's translated son of perdition, son of ultimate destruction. That's his destiny. 
for his uh, wickedness and rejecting of Christ and what he did delivering him up. His destiny is utter destruction. Well, guess who's related to him, in a sense, spiritually? This man, this Antichrist, the son of destruction. Speaks of a spiritual relationship, I believe. Jesus would tell the Jews who didn't believe in him, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do his will, John 8. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. That's your spiritual parent. And this is your spiritual destiny. This man's spiritual destiny is he is a son of destruction, utter destruction. He causes it, and he will enter into it as he's defeated. So then, what do we know about this son of perdition, this son of destruction? In Matthew chapter 24, the Lord Jesus calls him the abomination of desolation, referring to the book of Daniel, which we read of earlier. Matthew 24, and I would love to share through Matthew 24. You can get CDs from 24 on. We go through all this stuff here. But Matthew 24, verse 15. Therefore, now the Lord Jesus is speaking about the sign of the end of the age and his coming. He's answering those questions. He's going to say, here's what's going to happen. All this stuff's going to happen. And it morphs into him talking to Jews who will be in that time who are not saved or do get saved. And he's going to say, when you see this, you better do this. You see, and in that seven years, we won't be here. There'll be Jews who didn't, who weren't saved and went into it, and they're going to get saved. They're going to be reading the New Testament, and they're going to see what happens. And God says, you better do this or you're in big trouble. Notice what he says. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation who is spoken of through Daniel, which we saw, the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. When you read this and you see it happening, And in the context here, get out of town. Flee to a place where I'm going to protect you. We'll see that in Revelation. Okay? That's what he's talking about. And those who don't do so, evidence they don't know the Lord, don't they? Because they're not obeying the Word of God. So then, he's called the abomination of desolation here. The son of destruction, the abomination of desolation. The term abomination speaks of a detestable thing. A detestable thing religiously. Desolation speaks of devastation and destruction. A detestable thing that causes destruction. That's who this guy is. A detestable thing that causes destruction. And he says, when you see him, spoken of Daniel. Remember we saw it briefly in Daniel 9.27. You remember that? We saw Daniel 9.27. And he will make a firm covenant, agreement, with the many for one week. That's that last seven years. But in the middle of the week, he will stop the sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even a complete destruction that one is decreed is poured out, the one who makes desolate. So we have this evil man in the middle of this last seven years, beginning making a firm covenant with Israel, a deal. He's going to make a deal, okay? In the middle, he's going to break that deal. Now, from the book of Daniel, we gain even more understanding into this man. He is called there, and in Revelation, the beast. The beast. He's like a beast. To understand this, earlier in Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar would have a vision, and Daniel would interpret that. And it had to do with four kingdoms, in a sense, four future world kingdoms. And then in chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of four beasts. And this is explained, and I want to go through this. And like I said, a lot of stuff I'm going to go through, but let's go through it. Daniel chapter 7, it's in the Bible, we can understand it. It's going to help us understand this man, this abomination of desolation. And you'll know where to look up. God gives us a lot of information. 
Now, I don't have time to break down this prophecy that Daniel has. I'm going to give you some information as I go through it. But then Daniel's going to be perplexed. He's going to say, I want to know about that fourth beast. And he's going to explain, and we're going to see more clearly. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, by the way, this will be helpful for later, the great sea is always usually speaking of Gentiles. Four winds, the whole earth, in a sense, stirring up the great sea. That's prophetic, okay? You're going to see that. Yeah, it's going to be important for Revelation. By the way, you can't understand Revelation without understanding Daniel, okay? So here, and four great beasts, this is a vision, so every part you don't dissect, but parts have meaning that can be interpreted, okay? And four great beasts were coming up from the sea. Those are Gentiles. That's the implication. Different from one another. They had different qualities of beastiness, I guess. All right? He said the first was not a lion, but like a lion and had wings of an eagle. Now, we can see from other passages that that's speaking of Babylon. That's the way Babylon was and the way the empire was. Now, we'll keep going. I kept looking and under its wings until its wings were plucked. That's Nebuchadnezzar. You know, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. I think that's speaking of Nebuchadnezzar. He said, and behold, another beast, the second one resembling a bear. This is, I believe, speaking of Medo-Persia. Now, I don't have time to explain that, but I'm just going to give you the information. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, arise, devour, and eat much meat. Because we're going to see their kingdoms. And I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, that's Greece, I believe, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads. That's what happened to Greece when it split up. You see that in the empire, right? Four. And dominion was given to it. And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, there was a fourth beast. Now, in Daniel, it's looking forward. And when you look forward, sometimes you can see two mountains that look like they're like this, but they're actually spread. Here, it's speaking of a fourth beast. It's the Roman Empire, I believe, but it's going to morph into what happens in the very end of time, which we call a revived Roman Empire. We see back earlier in Daniel that what God does, the same type of empire, and we'll see this in a minute, that was on earth when Jesus was there, like Rome, will be there when the 70th week happens. It's like the clock starts and we have almost the same thing happening then, the same characteristics. Now, keep reading. Dreadful, terrifying, extremely strong, and had large iron teeth. Sounds like Roman Empire, doesn't it? And it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different. Now it's going to start to morph here. This is where it morphs. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another little horn came up among them. Three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. I believe we'll see that's the Antichrist, okay? That's the abomination of desolation. That's the son of destruction. Bring forth.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.